Well, thank you so much, uh, Pastor. It is a wonderful joy to be in God's house on Easter Sunday morning and to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. Pastor, thank you for uh, for a pastor. This is always a sacrifice to give up Easter Sunday, and I, I understand that. Thank you so much. I do want to express my our sincere, my wife and I, our sincere gratitude. Uh, when we came to serve at Bob Jones University, it took us four years to find a church. We decided to leave Greenville and to come out to where normal people live. And so we came down to Clemson. It was a great sacrifice for me because I grew up in Columbia and I was a Gamecock fan, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so I just want to express our deepest gratitude and love for this body of believers. And we love you, and we thank God for you. The Cooks have been uh, true pastors. I, I, I don't. I didn't even know. I didn't have any expectations, and and they have reached out and served and shepherded, for which we are deeply, deeply thankful. Uh, we do not have family here. They were here for a while, but they've all moved, and so it's just my wife and I, and this has become. Uh, somewhat of a second family, though I'm not here as often as I would like to be. I told Pastor I would be your best church member. I would never come. I would tithe, and I would never get in any troubles. So thank you, Pastor, for the privilege to be here today. And uh, it's a delight to have my brother and his his daughter and family here. They're, they're living down in Somerville, South Carolina, and drove up for the weekend. And so thank you, and May we, may we celebrate and worship in our hearts, our risen Lord. We were born in His body, our wounds. He has those wounds still in His body. And, though, and our, life, our life is in His wounds. And the suffering that He bore and the resurrection that He experienced, which is our hope in our life, both now and forevermore. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Mark. We're going to look at three passages of Scripture today. I want to begin with an illustration that's somewhat familiar to many of you. It comes out of the fantasy novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. It's a story about a land called the Land of Narnia. And the king of the woods in that, that land is a lion named Aslan. And he is the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Now, if you know the story, in the story there is an evil white witch, and she is very powerful, and she accuses a young man named Edmund of being a traitor. And the witch states that the deep magic from the dawn of time, which is written on the table of stone, says that she has the right to kill every traitor. And Edmund's blood is her property. Well, Aslan has a private conversation with the witch. And that night, Aslan lays down on the table of stone and he is killed by the witch as a sacrifice. Well, the next morning when the sun rises, the stone table was broken into 
two pieces by this great crack that ran down it from end to end. And Aslan, the lion, has disappeared. Well, there are two sisters in the story. Their names are Susan and Lucy. And knowing that Aslan is dead, they come out of hiding and they discover that Aslan, the lion, is gone. They ask if this was more magic. And a voice behind them answered answered the girls, telling them that it was indeed more magic. And they turned around and they saw Aslan alive and well. And thinking that Aslan is dead, they asked the question, Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan? And Aslan says, Not now. And then one of the girls, Susan, asks, But what does this all mean? And here is Aslan's answer, and listen very carefully. Aslan said, It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. The witch's knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. And if she could look back just a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. And she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's place, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. You see, in life, it's working towards death. But in this case, death works back towards life. And in the story, we learn that there is a deep magic, and yet there's a magic deeper still. Now this morning, with that story in mind, I want us to consider the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection three times. And I want you to understand that the story that C.S. Lewis was written was to teach us What happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus? As we look at it, we're going to see that the disciples did not understand the deep magic and that there was a deeper magic still. We're reading Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is the first prediction that Jesus gives to his disciples concerning his death and resurrection. Verse 31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's the deep magic. And after three days, rise again. There is a deeper magic still. Now notice, if you will, please, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. We find here the second prediction that Jesus gave to his disciples concerning his death and resurrection. 
It says they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. That's the deep magic. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. There is the deeper magic still. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now notice, if you will, please, the third prediction our Lord gives in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, where here he predicts once again to his disciples concerning his death and resurrection. He says in verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The deep magic. And after three days, he will rise. There is a deeper magic still. As we read these passages of Scripture, it is quite clear that the disciples did not understand the deep magic. What was the deep magic of the death of Jesus Christ? He was dying not for his crimes. He was dying for our crimes. You see, it takes the grace of God to open your eyes to see Jesus dying for you. That's the deep magic. But then they did not understand the deeper magic still. And that is that in his death he would pay for our sins. But in his resurrection he would conquer sin and death in full. So that we who are believers have the hope of life after death and the resurrection of the body. And we know the disciples didn't understand this. As we used in common language, they didn't get it. And he says it in, in, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 32, where he makes it his second prediction, and he tells them, and then it says, Mark says, they didn't understand him. And the word for understand there, didn't understand, is the word from which we get the word agnostic. It wasn't there. The lights were not up. There was no spiritual comprehension. You see, in order for a person to become a believer, there must be an eye-opening experience where you get it. Have you ever had that experience in your life? Where the Lord opened your eyes to see that Jesus died for you? They did not understand. So why? Why did they not understand Well, we know at least for one reason they did not understand because they had to have their eyes open spiritually. Jesus said, no man can come to the Father except the Spirit draw him. You know, after many years of being in evangelism, I found that when I was preaching, 
two people could hear the exact same sermon, and one of them, both of them were blind, but one of them experienced an eye-opening revelation in their life where they came to see the Lord. God's got to do a work in your life. Let me also say that they did not understand, at least from a human perspective, because Jesus was not what they expected. What were they looking for? They were Jews. They were expecting a certain kind of a a teacher, a certain kind of a prophet. They were looking for someone like Ezra, a rabbi who would expound and reinstitute the Torah. But instead, Jesus came and he taught them puzzling parables that they didn't understand. He told them that the surprising kingdom of God was breaking in. The nearness of a father's love that they didn't really see God that way. And that he would forgive them of all of their sins in one great sacrifice. They didn't expect that. He wasn't the kind of authority they expected. They were looking for a mighty Messiah, a conquering king who would come with dominion and power and purify the temple, expel the Gentiles, overthrow the dominion of Rome. But instead, his authority was not in his greatness. His authority was in his meekness and in his person and who he was, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not what they expected. And let me also say that he didn't have the kind of mission they expected. Once again, when when they saw Jesus in their mind, they, they thought his mission was success, dominion, power. You remember when one of the disciples wanted to exert that power? He took out a sword. What did he do to an individual, that particular disciple? cut his ear off. That means he missed his head. And Jesus said, put up your sword. Wrong kingdom. My kingdom is very, very different. For they perceived dominion. They perceived power. They perceived success. But Jesus said, that's not the purpose of my life's mission. The purpose of my mission is not success. The purpose of my mission is suffering. Jesus summed it up in Mark 8.31. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. No one in Israel would have ever considered that the Messiah would suffer. No one would have understood that his suffering would have been an atonement for sin. They couldn't imagine a human being dying for sins to cover sins. That was the work of an animal. Never In Israel, did they expect that? And yet, the irony of the suffering of Jesus is that it did not come as would have been expected from the hands of wicked and godless people, if I could put it in this way, like the white witch. They didn't expect that. The suffering of Jesus came from different hands. They were the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. It was not humanity at its best that 
excuse me, it wasn't humanity at its worst that crucified Jesus. It was humanity at its best. The death of Jesus when he was crucified was not a mistake. It was not an uh-oh. But it was a deliberate and careful plan from respected religious leaders who would justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing that they were rendering service to God. You see, he shows us that the best of humanity is completely insufficient, and they don't even get it. And yet, that was God's ordained way. God's way was that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So why? Why suffering? Why this way? The answer is because God always shows himself to be God when we suffer. God reveals himself not through success. We we have a tendency to think, you know, all these wonderful things happen. Praise God, he did it. Well, of course he did it. We understand that. But when we look at the heart of the gospel, God accomplished his purposes through suffering. Remember what Jesus said in John 12? He says, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The seed has the power on the inside, but the shell on the outside has to come off. There must be a death before the life on the inside can come out. And that Jesus was referring to himself as the corn of wheat that would go to a cross and suffer, bleed, and die for our sins, and then he would come out of the grave alive, and from that would bear fruit. That's true of him, and that is true of us. When we read the scriptures, it's very clear. Go back in the Old Testament. What do we see? We see a father, Abraham, having to sacrifice his son Isaac, the greatest heartbreak of his life, suffering. But it was through that willingness to die that God provided for him a sacrifice to show that God works through sacrifice in suffering. We see it in the life of Joseph over and over sold into slavery, thrown into prison, forgotten for two years in the most unfair, unjust, and unsympathetic ways by the very people whom he loved, served, and helped. But what did God do? God showed his power through the suffering of Joseph. He raised him from the prison and brought him into the palace of of the high, of the of the greatest, most powerful king on the earth, Pharaoh. And God blessed him over and over. The sufferings of Job show us the power of God. And when we understand the suffering of Jesus, we begin to understand the glory of God. Life comes out of death. We go down in order to go up. We become poor in order to be rich. We are crucified before we are 
resurrected. Suffering always comes before glory. This has always been the way of God. It's the way that He works. We must suffer many things. And in suffering, God is therein precisely God because He does what humanity can never do. Think of the benefits, the blessings, the riches, the wealth that comes out of the suffering of Jesus for every single one of us. Think of the benefit of redemption. We were all slaves. Now we're free. Free indeed. Think of the blessing of reconciliation. We were an enemy with God because of our sins, but now we have become best of friends through what? Through the suffering of Christ. Consider the benefit and the blessing of regeneration. We were dead as a doornail. And we knew that there was a God, but we did not know that God that existed. And in regeneration, we go from death unto life, and now we are alive in God, and now we can know God and have a relationship with God and become like Him through the work of God in our life. We were justified, a benefit. We were guilty, condemned, standing before God, with no way to plead our case. And because of the work of Jesus on the cross, He now declares us righteous. Not just forgiven, but righteous in His sight. Then think of the word sanctification. We were dirty, filthy, broken, and unusable. And God has cleansed us. God has fixed us. And now God can bless and use our lives for His glorious purposes. All of these benefits flow out of the suffering of Christ on the cross through His death and through His resurrection. And when we look at our lives, it's no different. Because the greatest works of God in the life of a believer are not done through his successes. It is done through his suffering. I was a young Christian. I'm so glad for the the things that I was taught and learned. And one simple principle that I learned is the, the concept of vision, death of a vision, resurrection of a vision. It's the way of God for the life of the believer. We have a vision, what we want to do. And suddenly we think this is what God's going to do, and then all of a sudden something happens and that vision dies. We're thrown on our faces, and we're thrown on our knees, and we don't know what's going to happen in our life, and we trust God and lean on God, and we don't get bitter, but we issue into greater belief and faith, and suddenly God raises it up and shows what His vision is. I started in the Ministry of Evangelism. It was June of 1985. I was 29 years old. My wife was 27 years old. We had two little girls, ages 3 and 1, Rebecca and Rachel. They are now 40 and 38. 
and I would say probably into our second or third meeting, my wife said that she was having a hard time seeing out of one of her eyes. We were out on the road traveling, and by the time we got home, she had gone blind in an eye. Did not know what it was, and we began to go through a series of tests with the doctors. Got to a neurologist and discovered in 1985 that my wife had multiple sclerosis. She went down, was it University of Michigan that you, you did the MRI? Where did you do that, Steve? Yeah, my wife went to the University of Michigan, and she was one of the first MRI patients in the state of Michigan. And sure enough, as they checked her brain, she had, and as far as we know, has multiple sclerosis. And suddenly, we begin this ministry. It's like, what's going on, Lord? A vision and a death of a vision. And then suddenly we began to realize, God, you have to resurrect this. You have to do this work. A resurrection of a vision. God at work. God moving. I say that to all of our our friends here today. This is the way of God. This is what God does in the lives of his people. Why? Because we always live somewhere between Friday and Sunday. Friday on the cross. Sunday, the empty tomb. That's the life of the believer. And we are constantly going through times where we have what we think we're going to do, and God brings that to the cross and it dies, and then he resurrects and shows his work in our life, the vision, the death of a vision, and the resurrection of a vision. He has showed us that we must suffer many things because that's what our Lord did. But it is through that that we see the power of the resurrection. I want to share with you just, if I may this morning, one of my favorite Easter meditations. It comes from a pastor who pastored the Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California from 1953 to 1993. His name was S.M. Lockridge, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. No wonder he just called himself S.M. It's a poem that I would like to read to you. It's called, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betrayed. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. But they don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running. Mary is crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat by Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. 
is Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood is dripping. His body is stumbling. And his spirit is burdened. But you see, it's only Friday because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning. And evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. The Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know it's only Friday because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death is won. Sin is conquered. And Satan is laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into its place. But it's, fr- but it's Friday. It's only Friday. Why? Because Sunday is coming. And that's where we live. Somewhere between Friday and Sunday. And on this day, we celebrate that Sunday has come, and the tomb is empty. We have one of our children who's living in Jerusalem, our son Michael, our youngest son. He did his undergraduate degree from Bob Jones University in history, and he did a master's degree in Middle Eastern history from Hebrew University in Jerusalem. People ask him, ask me, what is he doing? That's a really good question. His wife is working. So he's become a social media influencer. That's what he's doing. As of this morning, he has 128,000 followers. And twice a day, with an iPhone, he does live tours from the old city of Jerusalem. He walks around, and he tells the story. He walks around and reads the Bible. What a job. We were coming to church this morning. He was in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the, the, I think, the traditional site of where Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And thousands of people were there. What makes today what today is all about is that a man named Jesus, who is the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead. And it is that that we believe, that gives to us everlasting life. Do you have everlasting life this morning? Do you know that you are a believer in an empty tomb? Forty-eight years ago, today, I was a freshman in college. I went to a school in Charleston called the Citadel. During my freshman year, I was not a Christian. I was not a believer. I grew up in church. I grew up in a fairly nominal Christian home. That is Christian in name, but not in reality. 
And I went off to college in my freshman year at the Citadel. I played on the soccer team. I was on the varsity my freshman year. There were two of us on the team that were freshmen. Myself and a fellow named Maxie Birch from Beaufort, South Carolina. And we became best of friends. We roomed together. We traveled together. We practiced together. And on the way to the practice field, back and forth on a regular basis, Maxie and I would talk and we would walk. We would and we, we would walk and we would talk. And Maxie was a Christian and I wasn't. And he began to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that I could be saved through Christ. And I had heard the story before. I understood the gospel, but I'd never really believed the gospel. I'd never taken a step of faith, an act of faith, to trust Christ as my Savior. So we went through our freshman year. First semester, I survived. We got into second semester, and I was doing okay. But God was working in my life. It's my freshman year. I've been away from home, and just so many things were different. I began to have a deeper awareness of my own sinfulness, a deeper awareness of the emptiness of my heart and soul, and what was life all about. We had spring break weekend, and at the same time, it was Easter weekend. And so I went with some of my friends to Myrtle Beach. Easter Sunday morning, I woke up 48 years ago today, and I started driving home. This was before the building of, of uh, I believe, it was the, the connection between Columbia and Florence called I-20. Was it I, did I-20? Yeah, they hadn't been built yet. And the only way to get home from Myrtle Beach to Columbia were the back roads in the low country of South Carolina through great cities like Turbyville. And I was driving down the highway that day, and I, I would have listened to the local rock station. But as I was driving by churches on that Sunday morning and I saw the parking lots filled, there was something in my heart that was crying out turned on the radio, and I found a religious station, a church service. And the choir sang, and the pastor began to preach over the radio. I have no idea the church, the pastor, denomination, that was all irrelevant at the time. And all I know is that he began to preach, and he began to preach the gospel. And the first thing he preached about were sins, and I felt like he was preaching at me because I'm riding down the highway and this guy says something like this. There's some of you right now, you're driving down the highway and you're listening to me. I'm going, I am listening to you. And all the sins I committed in the last three or four days, he began to name them. And then he began to very simply preach of the crucifixion of God's Son on a cross as a sacrifice, an a paying price for my sins. And I knew in my head that I understood it, but I had never believed and received it within my heart. And then he preached on the resurrection from the dead, simply, that the one that died rose from the dead, and he is alive forevermore, and he's living now. And the preacher said something like this. There's somebody driving down the highway, and you know you're not saved. 
why don't you pull over on the side of the road right now and get saved? Well, I didn't pull over the side of the road. But 48 years ago, this morning, right about this time, I didn't know what to do other than to cry out to God, God save me, please. I want a change of life. I want a new heart, a new life. And on Easter Sunday, 1975, I entered into the experience of the death, the, res- the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and embraced it and believed it, and became a child of God. So let me say to you, there's some of you sitting here right now who have never done this, never been saved. Would you not today open your heart and cry out to God and say, God, save me. Because that's the way God works in the world, and that's the way God works in our hearts. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? And I urge you right now, sitting in your seat, There's someone here you feel deeply on the inside. You feel like God is speaking to you. You know God is speaking to you. He is. Then confess Him. Say, Lord, I believe I receive Jesus today. I desire for Him in my heart. Would you pray that today? Would you call out on the Lord? Then at some time, If you have received Jesus today, then tell a friend and tell a pastor, I have believed today. I have received the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who was lifted up on a cross and all the guilt and all the shame and all the corruption and all the evil and all the perversion and all the... twistedness and all the self-righteousness, all the things that we depend on somehow to make life work, to live our life for our own self, all of that, Lord, was laid on you and you took it all on yourself and you suffered. And through your suffering, we are made free. Thank you, Lord, that you died and you died in full and completely paid for all of our sins so that we can have everlasting life. Thank you that you gloriously resurrected from the dead and you have proved that you've overcome sin, death, and the grave. And now, Lord, we live with an everlasting hope in the resurrection and that one day we will rise in a new body and live with you forever. And we thank you for this glorious hope in Jesus' name.